Good morning again, and welcome to those of you who have joined us online. I'm so glad that you could be here with us today. For those of you who don't know me or have forgotten, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and I've been on vacation the last couple of weeks. I hope you've enjoyed your break because I'm back. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, we've been doing a series. We've been going through the letters of Peter. Today we are finishing 1 Peter. We're on the last chapter of 1 Peter, and I've really been enjoying this series. I, I don't know about you, I, I really like just going through books of the Bible. I feel like as we do this together, as, as we explore and as we understand God's Word, and especially understand it in its context, kind of in its own bubble, then we we just grow our love and appreciation for the word together. And I'm so glad that we get to share that together. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into the word. Lord God, thanks for today. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the practice of communion that we can raise hearts and voices in worship to you. Lord, it's so good to be in your house together as your family. Pray that you'd be with us this morning, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would speak through me and have a word for each one of us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter, and this Sunday is the end of 1 Peter. Next Sunday, we're going to go to 2 Peter. But as a bit of a recap, I wanted to share with you my five favorite verses from the book so far. No spoilers for today. It's only up till chapter 5, so nothing from this one. But think of this as a bit of a greatest hits, some Cole's notes, as it were, to take with us. And maybe you have your own list, and I'd love to hear it later. But for me, the first one is found in chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter tells us, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Now, I don't know if you remember when we preached through this chapter, this was written to Gentile Christians, to people who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. And so for me, as a Gentile, this verse celebrates our acceptance into the family of God, and it does so with incredible and moving Old Testament imagery. Second, a few verses later, chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. I want this so badly. I want to be that light, that presence in the community that shows God's goodness, that whatever else people may think about Christians, they'll at least look at this Christian and think, well, maybe... And isn't that what we all want? My third top five is chapter three, verse one. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Notice it's chapter three, verse one. It begins with finally. Because who doesn't love a good false finally right in the middle of the sermon? Maybe that's just me as a preacher. Four, this is chapter 4, verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. I just love the image of Christians who used to be so very not Christians and who have spent their lives living without Christ and have now turned to him. And I love Peter's almost dismissive view of this. You've spent enough time doing that. 
it makes me smile and it makes me hopeful. I just, I liked it. And lastly, chapter four, verse eight. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Beautiful. Words, words to live by. Words to build a life on. So those are my top five. If you have your own top five, I'd love to hear them. But hey, maybe some of them are going to come from today's sermon, so we better hold off. But there are some themes that we've picked up on as we've worked our way through this letter. There have been two main ones, and they've been right there from the first chapter. Peter keeps hitting them over and over again. It's almost like he thinks this is important or something. These two themes are living conscious of our eternal reward, consciously, I don't know, one of the teachers can correct me later, to stand and endure present suffering. Those are the two themes. Throughout the letter, Peter has applied these two themes to various contexts. Sometimes it has been standing through the persecutions of human government. They were staring down the barrel of Nero's persecution in the Roman Empire. So that certainly is relevant. But sometimes Peter has applied it to standing through the pressures of living in a society that's totally opposed to God. It's not coming from the government, it's just the people around you. Sometimes it has meant standing through the persecution of being married and having a job. But now, Peter turns his attention to one last context in which we must stand and resist temptation and apply ourselves to living with heaven in mind through the victory of Christ. And this final context is one that we find ourselves in right now, the local church. How's that for a twist? Let's read the chapter together and then we'll talk it through. First Peter chapter 5. I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, we're going to just read through the chapter and then we'll go back through it. So if you'd like to follow, I've, yeah, we've got it up on the screen. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Book. 
A couple of neat things to point out from the final greetings. First, there is a solid chance that Silas, or Silvanus, depending on your translation, who helps Peter write this letter, is in fact the same Silas from the book of Acts, as in Paul and Silas. It is possible that these were different men, but the tradition seems to think that it was the same guy. Secondly, Peter refers to Mark, as in the gospel according to that Mark. This is a lot less in doubt than the question of who Silas was. Third, who is the she in verse 13? She who is in Babylon. Do you know who the tradition says that is? Mary, like the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus, and that Babylon is a coded reference to Rome. So can I just say, what a power group of faith heroes stands behind this letter. Not just Peter, but Mary, Mark, and Silas. What? I'm going to take this letter a little more seriously. I don't know about you. All right, so that's pretty cool. But there are three sections of this text that I want to look at. The first happens in verses 1 to 4. The second is verse 5 all by itself. And then verses 6 to 11 form the third section. In my Bible, this chapter begins with a heading, to the elders and the flock. We're going to focus on the part that's addressed to the elders first, or shepherds. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This section is addressed to the elders. The Greek word is presbyteros, as in Presbyterian, like that's where the denomination gets the name. In the Hebrew context, this word means elder, which refers obviously to someone of, shall we say, distinguished age. But more importantly, it refers to someone with the wisdom of having lived through life. You do not need to be old to be wise. I have known wise young people, and I have known foolish old people. But in general, we understand that there is a wisdom that comes with life experiences. Now, in the Christian context, elders does not so much refer to those who are advanced in age, but to those who are advanced in spiritual maturity. We are, as we usually are at this time of year, on the hunt for new elders for our oversight board. This is not simply a matter of selecting the eldest members of the congregation. Like, uh, I don't know, who's, who's the oldest one here? Uh, we're not going to do that survey. <laughs> But what's interesting is that Peter is not actually talking about elders in the sense of an elder board or an oversight committee. The early church didn't have elder boards. So far as we can tell, the early church had three offices. They had apostles who went around starting churches and also provided accountability to those churches through letters and visits, right? We, we understand this. It's Paul, it's Peter, it's James, the second office was elders who oversaw the local churches that had been started. And third, there were deacons who assisted the elders in the practices of the local church. 
which means that in our context, the elder that Peter is talking about is actually the pastor. And what I really like about this introduction is that Peter doesn't identify himself here as an apostle. He doesn't reference the fact that he was the leader of the original disciples of Jesus. Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder. Peter is identifying himself to the pastors as another pastor. There's another word which the New Testament Testament uses often, which we do translate usually as pastor, and that is the Greek word poimen, and it means shepherd. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where we read about the five-fold ministry, we hear apostles, prophets, evangelists, poimen, and teachers. That, that word, it's a noun, and it means shepherds. In fact, it's exactly the same word that is used in Luke 2, and there were shepherds, poimen, in the fields nearby. So it's, it's, it's this word, and it means shepherd, and it often gets translated as pastor. But in 1 Peter 5, 2, we see this word come up again, actually in sort of a related sense. 1 Peter 5, 2 commands poimeno, it's a verb, the poimnion. Can you tell the words are related? Shepherd, the verb, the sheepherd of God is what Peter says. Shepherd the sheepherd of God. It's almost a play on words. Do you remember Peter's restoration at the end of John's gospel? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Feed lambs. Right? You remember this three times? Interestingly, John uses two different words for sheep and also two different words for feed. And so the combination is different in each of the three statements. The first word that he uses is bosco, and it means feed what grandma does when you come over right there's nothing exciting there but the second time jesus doesn't say bosco jesus says poimano it's the same verb to shepherd it also means to feed it means to care for to rule over to protect i wonder if peter was remembering that event in his life when he wrote these words just as he himself had been shepherded and brought back into the sheepfold, so now Peter speaks to other shepherds to encourage them to shepherd as Christ has shepherded, and presumably as Peter has shepherded in Christ's example. Now the problem with this passage is that arguably these verses are written for only one person in this church, me. But where's the fun in that? Right? And don't get me wrong. I have spent many hours this week thinking and praying through and wrestling these words written to the shepherds and elders. But I really do believe that any of the words written to Christian leaders in the Bible are for all of us. There's a certain underline that happens when you're in Christian leadership, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't apply. There are certainly lessons for all of us as members of Christ's body I think that it falls to every member of every Christian congregation to share wisdom, to shepherd, to care for the vulnerable among us, and to show compassion for those who are hurting. In a very real sense, we are all pastors. Pastoring is not my job, it's 
our job, especially if you're providing any level of leadership to this church, whether you're leading a class of kids, a team of greeters, or organizing a worship service from top to bottom, you too are called to shepherd those people that you are leading. So what lesson can we take from Peter's words to the elders? There are a number of lessons here, but to me, the most important one, the one that jumps out at me as the most obviously applicable and probably the most in need, at least in my opinion, is in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. This is exactly the sentiment, I don't have to, I get to. That's exactly what he's saying. Because sometimes, let's be real, service in church is a struggle. Sometimes it's hard to get up early for church again. To come and be with screaming kids again. Or to be vigilant against outside threats on the security team again. Or to deal with a frustrating sound system that just doesn't seem to want to cooperate again. Sometimes... Christian service itself is the suffering that we need to stand up under. But God doesn't want us to serve because, well, nobody else wanted to do it, so I guess I'll step in. God wants us to be walking in and exercising our spiritual gifts, to be excited and enthusiastic about what God is doing in your area and eager to be a part of what's going on. By this, we provide an example to everyone around us. And Peter finishes this section by reminding we who are shepherds, all of us, that we ourselves are under the chief shepherd and that there is a reward for us that will never perish or fade. Peter's advice for the rest of the church is in verse 5. Remember, before this, it was addressed to the elders. So in contrast, verse 5 begins, in the same way you who are younger, which is kind of like saying you who are not elders, submit yourselves to your elders. And then Peter almost immediately backtracks, as if, "Ah, is this really just for the young? All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Peter's prescription for everything about church, for everything about how we do life together, how we put our lives together so that we can serve God, is to be humble. And this isn't only for the non-elders. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. In the second half of this verse, Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34. But what's interesting is that James, which is the book that comes right before 1 Peter, also quotes Proverbs 3.34. James does it in chapter 4, verse 6. It's almost like they're hammering on this issue. We could say that there are two sides in life. There's pride and there's humility. And they each receive a different response from God. Pride gets resistance, but humility gets favor or grace. Which do you want? Do you want God to resist you? We're all fond of the verse that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But what about the reverse? If God is against you, who can be meaningfully of assistance? 
We desperately need the grace of God. We are, after all, saved by grace alone. But by our own pride, we can set ourselves in opposition to what God wants to do in our lives. Peter then spends the next few verses highlighting both the importance I've cut out and the effect that a life of humility will have. He just continues to expand on why humility is the answer. Verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Boom! There's the first effect. Peter promises that when we humble ourselves, when we submit to God, that we will in turn be exalted or lifted up in due time. Now, when is that time? Is it in this lifetime? Maybe. Sometimes we get justice in this life. Sometimes we do. Sometimes the corrupt leaders go down and righteous ones replace them and sometimes you get paid back for the injustice that you endured. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes the perpetrators die before justice can happen. Sometimes the system doesn't execute justice. Sometimes you die before justice can happen. But the eternal judge of the universe is not asleep at the bench. None of this slips past God. Whether punishment or reward, we can be confident that the just and holy judge will execute that which is right in due time. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is a hard one for most of us. We want to lay our burdens at God's feet. We love that idea. We even do it pretty often when we come to worship God. The problem is that most of us tend to pick it back up as we leave. There are a number of reasons that we do this, but in this context, I think the reason that we need to highlight is because we lack humility. We can't trust anyone else with it. We have to be the one. That's pride. Whether we have to solve it or whether we just need to worry about it, we can't let it go. But the amazing thing and what we tend to forget is the because. Because he cares for you. This would have been a totally foreign idea to the pagan Greeks and Romans of Peter's day. And in fact, I hear something like this pretty regularly from atheists today who want to argue against God's existence. How can God possibly care about what you do in your life? He's too busy for that. This is exactly what the Greeks and Romans would have thought. But this ignores the idea of an omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and timeless God. I wish there was an omni for timeless. God doesn't lack attention span. God doesn't lack capacity. He is able to give full attention to everything all the time. I've lost my spot. He's able to give full attention to everyone, everything all the time. And you know what he chooses to give his attention to? You. Your life. Your worries. Your struggles. Your hurts. But not only that, he gives full attention to your growth, to your gifting, to your mission, to your reward. God wants you to be in full relationship with him, to be more like Jesus, to live your life in service to God and others, and to spend eternity with him. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. How do we resist the devil? Well, James talks about this too. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Look at that. Humility again. As we are humble, as we refuse to embrace pride, which Augustine called the root of all sin, we resist Satan. And when we resist Satan, he flees. This has been Peter's great and overarching message to us. Stand firm against temptation, against suffering. And why? What happens when we do? Verse 10, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these words. Lord, we pray that you would put them deep into our hearts, into our souls, that they would reap a harvest in our lives. Lord, help us to live different on Monday and Tuesday because we've sat under your word. Help us to serve in the way that you would want, Lord. Serve because we choose to and because we want to and we're enthusiastic, not because we feel that we have to. Help us to be humble, to submit to one another. Help those who are in leadership to shepherd those that you've given them, Lord. And most of all, God, we pray that you would find the evil one, that we would be humble and submit to you and watch Satan flee. We pray that you would be glorified in all this. In your name we pray. Amen.